Israel is best known for its biblical history, cutting-edge technology, and an outstanding military. But you may not know, it's also a world leader in diamonds. CBN News Middle East correspondent Julie Stahl has that story. You may have heard that diamonds are a girl's best friend, but what you might not know is that a lot of those diamonds come from Israel. The Israel Diamond Exchange has the largest trading floor in the world. Some say it's like shopping in a diamond supermarket. Israelis have a very special knack in being able to run around the world and are very, in the most positive way possible, aggressively pursue business. And you see Israelis in New York all the time. You see Israelis in the Far East. And it's become a very important hub for global distribution of diamonds. David Lasher is managing director of New York's Diamond Dealers Club. New York is the bedrock of the world diamond industry. You know, over 40% of the world's diamonds are consumed by the U.S. Israel is a very important partner in moving the goods through the world and to the U.S. The Israel Diamond Exchange boasts some 3,500 members. Shmuel Schnitzer is the lifelong honorary president of the Israel Diamond Exchange. It's not easy to become a member here. You have to, to show your credibility in all aspects. Oddly enough, the diamond connection began in Europe because it was one of the few trades allowed to Jews. As Jews returned to the Holy Land, they brought their knowledge with them. It started in the 40s when uh, Jews that uh, ran away from uh, Europe came to Israel and uh, they built the industry here. Since then, thanks God, we are growing and growing. In 1940, we had 70,000 U.S. dollars exports. Today, we have about $7 billion only for Polish diamond export. There are no diamond mines in Israel. All of its gems are traded, cut, and polished. Israel does not deal in conflict diamonds, the stones that are sold to finance civil war and bloodshed in Africa. Even today, the industry is very family-oriented passing the business from generation to generation. We are a family. My father is a diamond manufacturer uh, for 50 years. Yeah, and we, for 50 years, we, we manufacture diamonds. Me, myself, inside the business, and making diamond jewelry. And it's possible to spend a lot. This product, it's around uh, $200,000. I have uh, 150000 to $200,000. The people that can buy this is uh, or a wholesaler or a, a jewelry factory. But why are diamonds so enduring? Schnitzer says it's the combination of women's love for diamonds and their lasting value. That could be why diamonds are forever. Julie Stahl, CBN News, Israel Diamond Exchange, Tel Aviv, Israel. Hello there. This is going to be quite a show. Um, I'm patching this piece in the front of the show that I just recorded. Why? Well, <laughs> because you might want to listen for me, I think around the 15-minute mark. I was just doing a sound check. And in case you're wondering, well, just record it over again. No, I can't. Because, you know, as of yesterday, I hadn't made the connections between the Italians and the Jews. <laughs> so I need to keep moving. And there are a lot of things to producing these audio things that, you know, I have to compress a file. Then I have to upload that file to there. And if anything knocks me off a line along the way, it extends the time doing mechanical things by an hour or two. And I'm trying to limit my mechanical thinking time because... 
I need my thinking time to focus on what we're trying to uncover here, right? So, yeah. So, whenever I have knocked myself offline or something has happened, one time the cat <laughs> came next to my laptop and something went offline. So, I always have to tell myself, well, just take a breath. Make it better if you have to do it over again. So, my apologies for what happened around the 15-minute mark or whatever. You'll hear me start to talk about, um, I was just doing a sound check, and I thought I had the volume turned off, okay? So about that point, you'll hear me talking about, I'm going to cough, but I'm going to turn the volume off. Well, <laughs> I didn't turn the volume off. I thought I did. And then I proceeded to cough directly <laughs> into the microphone. So watch, keep your ears open for that point, because that could be a little bit brutal. And I really do apologize, really. In a perfect world, yes, I would, of course, record the show again, but i got to keep moving here. So anyway, so... <laughs> And then I rolled along, and I said, we're going to learn a new word here, kids, right? I forgot to talk about the word, and the word is critical, because I want you to use this word and go explore on your own. The word is Marano's, M-A-R-R-A-N-O-S. I stumbled across that when I was looking up Nancy Pelosi, and um, she was referred to as a Marano in some file that I found. I thought, what's a Murano? Um, this is their history, in which I find interesting, because yesterday, the last show I was talking about why I think the Jews may be the Muslims. Well, it's just this little tidbit that I found in this Murano deal. It said, after the expulsion of Jews and Muslims, now why are, why are they getting exposed, why are they getting so-called exposed uh, kicked out of these countries together. <laughs> I mean, early on, they seem kind of like a tight little team, don't they? You know, they have the same thing as far as their moms, and, you know, they, they both they, both these groups supposedly get kicked out of Spain in 1492. Okay. Because what was going on was supposedly forced conversions, okay? So you'll also look for a word, word called convertos, and funny how these are all Italian-sounding words, right? So <laughs> you'll see why I'm laughing about the Italian part and the Jew part <clears throat> when you get to the actual show. I'm just here to apologize for coughing and trying to make it better by, because I realized I had skipped these Muranos, and I thought, I think this is pretty important, so let me talk about this. Um, they had um, the, the, the origin of the term Murano as applied to crypto-Jews, is debatable, since there are at least three possible reasons for this word, and we'll read those reasons. One source of the term derives from Arabic, meaning forbidden. Morano, in this context, means swine. Oh, it means forbidden? Anamitization. I don't know what that means. It's spelled A-N-A-T-H-E-M-A-T-I-Z. Murano in this context means swine or pig from the ritual prohibition against eating pork practiced by both Jews and Muslims. Funny how they share all this stuff, right? She. <laughs> However, as applied to crypto-Jews, the term Murano may also derive from the Spanish verb marar, M-A-R-R-A-R. -R -R -R. 
<laughs> of Germanic <laughs> rather than Arabic origin. Funny, huh? Um, that word is meaning to deviate or to err. And this says that they were deviated from their newly adopted faith by secretly continuing to practice Judaism. So they were saying that they were being flipped into being Christians, but they were secretly practicing Judaism. That is what a Marano is, okay? So if you, it's all about, when you do research, it's all about the keywords, right? So with that word Marano, take a spin, okay? <laughs> um, and it also relates to the word, the verb is German, Germany, so. Okay, a third origin has been cited from Galician Portuguese where mar means to force and morano means forced one, indicating the compulsory nature of the religious conversions. So yeah, this was a big deal about converting people all to Christianity. But you know, we're in a dual world, right? What do you bet this was a lie? <laughs> so, so, yeah, it also, um, and the other point I want to make here, and then we'll go on with the show finally, is um, this percentage was suggested as representing the proportion of Sephardi Jews. Okay, and then, and other historical population movements near the Near East, such as Syrians and Phoenicians may also account for these results. So yeah, we're looking for the Italians as the hidden Jews, and you're looking for Maranos. So look up people. Open those eyes. If they're in charge, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> Just use a little bit of logic, folks. Okay, on with the show, and my sincere apologies for that blast in your ears, but I just felt like, you know, we can only do so much around here, but I at least owe you a warning. So, goodbye again. Hello there. I think you ought to pull up a chair, or a bench, or a sofa, whatever you choose. Going to cover a few things today. I think the Italians are Jews. <laughs> or hidden Jews. And we learned a new word today, kids. I'll tell you about that in a minute. And then I'm going to get into the diamond business and the Jew and jewelry. <laughs> so let me get this file open here. And... Um, how did I get on the Italian Jews? Well, I don't know. I was thinking about Nancy Pelosi yesterday. Nancy Pelosi is number three in line to be president. Nancy Pelosi is Italian. Okay? Nancy Pelosi is also a major crook. Okay? Go look at Nancy Pelosi and her stock deals. I'm not going to go all into it. Nancy Pelosi also made a very famous quote saying, No one except Germans should question the Holocaust. So, uh, a few little tidbits here. Nazi propaganda minister, we know this is all fake, but it's their fake history, right? Joseph Goebbels records in his journal his contempt for the Italians' treatment of Jews in Italian-occupied territories. The Italians are extremely lax in their treatment of the Jews. They protect Italian Jews. Yeah, okay. And then this guy wrote that, and also, where's the Vatican from? Italy? <laughs> remember, remember the show I did about San Francisco? Who is the genius that started off the Bank of America? What was that first? Bank of Italy? <laughs> he 
if you think any of this is <laughs> random, I got news for you. So this guy from Canada wrote this article. Wander he was wondering about the Jews and the Italians. So let me read what he had to say because it was interesting. People often talk about the remarkable affinities between Italians and Jews. <laughs> Do tell. They point to the emphasis placed by both groups on the importance of the traditional family. See, here's where it gets interesting because they absolutely do love their families, okay? They have family bonds unlike no other. But their entire focus is to destroy our family. See how this is working, right? Because they want their family to run things, okay? So they, uh, both groups place the importance of the traditional family which is often guided by an authoritative mother figure. They direct our attention to frequently striking resemblances in physical appearance. Yes, those noses do give them away now, don't they? To a common love of food and a fondness for talking about it. We are told that members of both groups tend to have strong personalities and to be highly opinionated that impoverished, unschooled immigrants, both Jewish and Italians, were prepared to work very hard to create a better life, cherishing, cherishing education as a key to upward mobility. Well, well, well. Of course, these are all stereotypes. <laughs> well, I don't think so, buddy. I think you got the first part right here. And he goes on to say, and it's easy to cite exceptions without end in either group. Yeah, there are, but we're looking at core similarities, right? Should we ascribe all the apparent similarities between Italians and Jews to mere coincidence? <laughs> or there's, or there perhaps something more to it? Yes, I think there's a lot more to it. And then this was his final thing, which really got my attention. He said, <laughs> and remember... The people that create, that control all the DNA databases, those are run by Jews up in Utah. It's a privately held company. I've talked about that guy before. His name is, uh, I forget it. But anyway, he, he's like the number, he's, he's pretty high up there. He had been at the BBC. He ran the New York Times. Now he's over in Utah with his high-level Jewish wife running the DNA bank there. So, And the other group that runs the DNA is the wife of the founder of Google. She has that 23andMe program, also a Jew. <laughs> so, um, he went on to say, I find it particularly fascinating that the predominantly Ashkenazi Jews of Toronto, <laughs> including my own family, have roots in southern Italy. Just like most of the Italians who live their lives in Toronto. Yeah, um, he, he said he lives with a great many of my fellow Jews who have never realized it. Yeah, I didn't really realize it until either, buddy, so thanks for filling me in. <laughs> this is just too much. Some days it's like shooting fish in a barrel. That Jews and Italians have come through the vagrancies of history living in a... Well, well oh, i got to cut to the chase here. These sentences can go on for a year. Okay, they live in affectionate concords as friends, neighbors, and colleagues. Yeah, I think that, I think that's who they are. And you know, we got all this history of Italians in this country. Wasn't Columbus history? Wasn't Columbus um, <laughs> Italian? 
or maybe he was Spanish. I, 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 I have a little hard time with some of the lies some days. So yeah, I'll leave that alone there for you to think about yourselves. I'm, I'm sure this is the way it is, or I certainly would not have spent my time just joking around about it. Yeah, the Italians are the Jews. And if you have any really good reasons why this is not, because I got a lot of work to do, so I'm going to keep rolling along here. So <laughs> let's get to the fun part. Let's get to the um, the relationship between diamonds and the Jewish people. If you have any diamond jewelry, I suggest you unload it as quickly as you can, okay? I had one ring that had value that I had for, oh, I don't know, 50 years or so. And uh, I um, unloaded it at the beginning of this thing. <laughs> Well, I think that ring could buy me a lot of a lot of cans of uh, vegetables and beans and rice. So yeah, I unloaded that thing with as soon as this thing hit. I thought I'm gonna need money for food. <laughs> if you got any gold and diamonds, think about it, okay? So up until the Second World War, the Netherlands and Belgium, in particular were tolerant to this otherwise very harsh, harshly prosecuted minority, always the victims, with the diamond industry flourishing throughout history. Diamonds and Jewish people have had a rich history together. One of the first, this is mentioned in the Bible, and I'll read you the quote if you want to look it up, it's called Exodus 28:18. Already I'm suspicious, okay? Exodus 28, colon, 18. <laughs> What's that? Two eights and a three? Um, now I started laughing. I lost track here. Yeah, so if you look at Exodus 28, 18, it says, And the second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. So in the Bible, supposedly, they were already talking about diamonds. <laughs> and then... Um, I found this quote. i got to find it here. Well, let me keep rolling along. I'll find that quote. I found this quote that had me laughing for hours. I'll find that in a minute here. Okay. Okay. As mentioned previously, it is no secret that the Jewish people and the diamond industry have a long history together, dating back as far as the Middle Ages and onwards. They have this lie that they control this. Well, they still do control it, so I'm going to go along with that, right? During this time, Israelis were dotted all over Europe with many of the countries they occupied. Why were they occupying countries? But anyway, so imposing harsh limitations on the types of industries that Jewish people could work in. Already the oppression, right? During early Europe. Jews were prohibited from buying land and furthermore from engaging in any agricultural practices which drove them to professions that did not carry such strict limitations. <laughs> it drove them to the places where they could rob and keep their hands clean, right? One main industry that remained untouched by such strict and prejudiced limitations across Europe was finance and trade, including such specific such specific professions as loans, banking, and the trading of gemstones and diamonds. <laughs> it's just funny how this worked out, right? Poor Jews. They were so mistreated, they were just forced into taking over everything, right? They cooked up money. Let's not kid ourselves. We, we never needed money before. 
And I'm sure that's how they were able to get a lot of us because let's say we're only a three generations into this little reset, okay? Well, most of us are the profile that psychopaths are looking for. If anybody would bother to read my book, we are who they target. They target kind and caring people because they know that we're, we, they can trick us more because we're not sitting there with evil thoughts wondering what the next guy is up to. We are assuming that you're telling us the truth. <laughs> So yeah, they, they, they cooked up the money thing and it, you know, we don't have that intent with us. So it, it made it very easy to roll us over into where we are today because they, <clears throat> they are the ones that are doing the reset. This therefore led to a significant portion of Jewish people working. <coughs> Excuse me, I can't cough and get away from this microphone. <laughs> My dog's water, it picks up, gee, it picks up everything. So. Okay, let me get back here. This led to a significant portion of the Jewish people working between the finance and trade industry, where the relationship between diamonds and the Jewish people first started to grow. Specifically in the diamond industry trade, it was not only essential, but also tricky to ensure these stones would safely arrive at their destination. This was mainly due to theft, concerned about those delivering the precious stones would simply run off with a package. See, the reason they're telling these theft stories is because they're selling us chips of glass, right? <laughs> you know, carbon is made all over the world, right? Anybody can make a diamond. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I, I learned a little bit about diamonds this week, which makes this story even more fascinating. So... This is where Jewish people had a great advantage. With close Jewish communities and families well established throughout main areas of Europe. This community of people scattered across various points of Europe helped to ensure any diamonds moved through it would be both reach its destination and safely and payment of the diamonds would be given. So early on they had a flood of people making sure these diamonds got to the right hands safely. Until the Second World War, the Netherlands and Belgium in particular were tolerant to this otherwise harshly prosecuted minority. So they were welcomed by Netherlands and Belgium during this time, the Jews, with their diamond industry. And the diamond industry flourished amidst the multitude of diamond cutters and diamond polishers in the Netherlands and Belgium. These parts of Europe were popular trading ports and had links to South Africa where Oppenheimer and De Beers diamonds were in abundance. There's a character named Oppenheimer and De Beers. We'll enter this picture in a bit here, okay? And I want to keep you guessing. They're both Jews. <laughs> okay. Throughout the 1300s, oh, excuse me, 19. I've got a case of dyslexia today. Throughout the 1930s, with the large number of European Jews going to Israel, came the development of Israel's diamond industry, 1930s. The first diamond exchange was established, and within the 1960s, the Israel Diamond Exchange, also known as IDE, went global by moving to Rangan. 
Although the economy of Israel has still grown and expanded, the diamond trading industry still accounts for around 16% of the Israeli GNP. Now, I don't know if this 16% is what year, but let's say 16% of their entire GNP. It sounds like a lot of money to me, but I'm not a Jew. I don't know money that well. (laughs) You'll have to figure this one out for me. The relationship between Jewish people and the diamond industry is one that has a fascinating past. Do tell. Opening up some of the major historical struggles Jewish people have faced throughout history. Diamonds continue to be traded across the world by the Jewish community. Rarely accepting payment up front, but rather a handshake and the exchange of words Maso and Broca, B-R-O-C-H-A. I plan to do a little Jewish uh, <laughs> um, explanation of these symbols and stuff, hopefully soon, because it'll help to make the stuff make more sense, okay? Diamonds are commonly used in engagement rings, anniversary gifts, and other kinds of bespoken jewelry. It's called bespoken, B-E-S-P-O-K-E-N, jewelry. De Beers, and I forget, I was recently talking about somebody from Germany named Beers. Remember I made a point of spelling out Beers, B-E-R-S? Well, De Beers is part of that same thing, I believe, um, and that De Beers person I was talking about before was German. <clears throat> so this De Beers is obviously a Jew, right? Um, they were the ones who really cracked the whip on getting everybody to buy diamonds. Um, so what they did, what I'm going to do here to cough, I'm going to just turn the volume down. I don't like just coughing into the microphone. Um, I can't have a solution. <coughs> Excuse me. Got it. Okay. I learned a new trick today. I learned a new word and a new trick. I'm on a roll. Okay, so um, De Beers created the engagement ring to sell diamonds, which they then created the supply and demand. And um, people did not used to get diamond engagement rings to be married previous to this push by the De Beers. So then I looked up just to make sure, is De Beer Jewish? De Beer is a, no, excuse me, Beer. That's where I found out the other guy was Beer, the name Beer. Enjoy that Beer, right? Is a Jewish surname. So that makes sense. Beer, poison, killing us, serving us beer. Um, Beer is a Jewish surname that originated, oh, I can't even believe this. (laughs) So I'm not, many times I'm making these connections when I'm reading to online, so... Beer is a Jewish surname that originated in Italy (laughs) in the 15th century. A Jewish surname, De Beer, is recorded as the name of Hans De Beer, who died in the German death camp in Auschwitz during World War II. Well, probably not dead, but yeah, probably they said he was there. Okay. Um, recently they've been, I don't know how I got that in the middle of this, but they, they've been changing their tune. They come up with fake beers now. Um, they have fake diamonds now. Well, the first diamonds are fake, but they have fake diamonds man-made, but they're calling them fake. Um, so, in 2020, the total value of the diamond jewelry market, now this, remember, this is a cash business primarily, right? A handshake and a cash business, <laughs> 
So take these numbers with a grain of salt, like a, like a shovel of salt, okay? Not even a teaspoon. <laughs> Get a shovel load down you. The market worldwide is $68 billion, U.S. dollars. That represented a decrease of $11 billion from the previous year. But I'm not going to get involved in the marketing of diamonds, but where are they right now? Well, they're over in China. China is the market for diamonds now. Now, this they're doing the fake diamonds now, and the De Beers' uh, new marketing campaign is uh, for their fake... They're doing, supposedly, man-made diamonds because... people. I'll get to that in a minute, but they the tagline for the De Beers diamond for this new one they came out with recently... It says, only God knows if it's real. Who, <laughs> God and the Jews. Um, so, yeah. Um, oh, let me tell you about them. I'll lose track of it. I don't know why I got them in the middle. De Beers is the largest diamond dealer in the jewelry box. Is launching a new company called Lightbox Jewelry to sell lab-grown diamonds. So, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so, they're losing shares. So, now they... Um, De Beers stayed out of this... Um, lab-grown stuff for a long time, but now they're in it. These unnatural gems, which cost 90% less than their billion-year-old organic bathroom. No, they're, 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 this is all a lie, okay? <laughs> Diamonds are not <laughs> billions of years old. Um, De Beer attempts to retain diamond dominance in spite of shifting consumer preference. So, yeah, they're, they're always shifting with the market, aren't they? Okay, <clears throat> they went on to say, I pulled up a thing that said, the market for mined diamonds has lost its, its sparkle. Modern bling buyers are concerned about mining in vulnerable areas and less interested in luxury goods. Well, that's unless you're, unless you're on social media, you're probably not as interested in luxury goods, right? All these kids that are influencers, little tranny kids selling people stuff, social influencers. Those those driving the market for rough diamonds down, rough, excuse me, rough natural diamonds have been down 40% since 2011. Positioned as an ethical attorney to socially and environmentally damaging mining. So, yeah, people became aware of the horrific things going on in these mines, these De Beer people's mines, and people lost the sparkle for diamonds. So now they're doing lab-grown diamonds. And their attitude was, if you can't beat them, join them. De Beer, whose price-fixing diamond monopoly was busted in 2000, initially tried to persuade buyers not to purchase lab-grown diamonds. Going as far as marketing as inexpensive detectors. So De Beers went so far that they marketed this ultraviolet detector to separate real stones from synthetic ones. These people stop at nothing, right? But when De Beers realized its synthetic competitors weren't going anywhere, the devious diamond sellers flipped their strategy on its head by joining the lab-growing diamond revolution and selling their lower-quality gems at rock-bottom prices to undercut the competition by 75%. <laughs> now, De Beers hopes that hyping up real diamonds and trash-talking lab-grown diamonds will preserve the company's 130-year-old good name. 
even as De Beers shells out $94 million to build a factory for lab-grown diamonds in Oregon, the company is seeing the, I don't know, lab-grown are not special. They're not real. They're not unique. Yeah, I don't know. That's too complicated for me. I'm not even that interested. Yeah, so they've gone from, okay, so let's get to the history. This is where it's more interesting. Sorry I drug you through that. Um, Diamond engagement rings, which were so commonplace, almost has to be almost has become passe these days. They actually rose to popularity in the early to mid 1900s, thanks in no small part to Harry Oppenheimer, the son of the founder of what, according to, would become the most successful cartel of the 20th century. De Beers Consolidated Mines Limited. The South African company incorporated in 1888 during the burgeoning local diamond rush. Gold rush, diamond rush. <laughs> As its formation and over the ensuing years, De Beers would successfully acquire countless interests in diamond mines and production facilities throughout the world. Oppenheimer, in a stroke of genius, contacted, and these are very important names, Oppenheimer and N.W. Ayer and Sons, A-Y-E-R and Sons, one of the leading advertising agencies in the United States in the 1930s. Their goal was to reverse the declining price of diamonds with an advertising campaign that aid to strengthen the association of diamonds with love and enduring romance. Young men who purchased 90% of engagement rings would be bombarded with the idea that diamonds were the gift of love. Women, too, would be targeted with the idea that no courtship could be complete without a sparkling diamond. <clears throat> Family houses, oh, excuse me, famous houses of worship were featured to follow up in advertisements, establishing a link between diamonds and the sacred tradition of a religious wedding. So, yeah, they, what they did was, in the early days, they showed photos of engagements and socialites wearing their new diamond rings, stories about advertisements with celebrities. See how they're getting the celebrities in here? For newspapers and magazines. De, De Beers Diamonds were all carefully planned to push the idea that diamonds were eternal, forever linked with romance, emotionally valued, and a necessary luxury. Okay, um, were it not for a single company and its drive to dominate the di diamond industry, the history of engagement rings would be very different. In Western society today, a man's love and commitment is measured by the size of the diamond he places on his beloved's finger. Diamonds are said to represent true love, faithfulness, and the strength of your relationship. They are also believed, focus on that word believed, to be... <laughs> let, me start, let me start over again. <laughs> they are also believed to be the rarest of all gemstones. The reality is, in fact, 
significantly less romantic. Diamond engagement rings, which are so commonplace as to almost be passe these days, actually rose in popularity in the mid-1900s. Yeah, I think I already talked about that guy. Okay. Um, he contacted them. Young, yeah, this is a... Okay, I got that guy. Okay, so they showed all these celebrities. The demand for diamonds was created as soon as it was invented by De Beers. Okay? The diamond use invention was more than a monopoly for De Beers as they were among the very few ones who controlled its distribution. Initially, a diamond was considered a luxury and a gem only for the wealthy. But the Great Depression of 1930 resulted in a great fallback for De Beers and forced him to look for ways to maintain and create a demand for diamonds, which isn't affected by the economy. So he learned from the Great Depression, because previously only wealthy people, right? Where did we hear this before? Only wealthy people practice religion. Only wealthy people go to college. Only wealthy people were wearing diamonds. They needed a marketing plan to make diamonds put in forever use. Diamonds didn't have much resale value, and this would hamper the demand for the same. This was another point which was kept in mind while forming the marketing strategy. And there's also a fun, fun fact. A diamond loses up to 50% of its value as soon as you buy it from the jeweler. <laughs> All these factors were discussed by Harry Oppenheimer, the son of Ernest Oppenheimer, he talked about this public. So they said, uh, since Europe was under a threat of war in the 1930s, the USA was selected as a country with the most potential to grow a diamond market. Because in the early days, the U.S. wasn't involved at first, right? So they conduct an extensive research on the social attitudes and perceptions of people about diamonds and came out with a conclusion that diamonds were considered a luxury reserved only for the super wealthy. The requirement at that time was to have a more emotional connection to the diamond rather than having it as a luxury. So they saw that having it as a luxury wasn't good. For the rest of us, they needed to tie us with our emotions. See, funny how that's all working out now, right, huh? Getting everybody to buy everything. Buying things releases things. The dopamine in your brain. So they came up with the first strategy, a diamond is forever. To sell more and bigger diamonds, because people were spending more on low-quality diamonds, they wanted to prevent people from reselling diamonds. They wanted to give a purpose to people to buy diamonds, and they wanted to sell them bigger diamonds. So the marketing campaign, A Diamond is Forever, associated the diamond in the engagement rings with true love. They came up with a perfect strategy to market diamond as a perfect gem, which was emotional, socially valuable, and eternal. All the qualities, when combined, cover the limitations of the product. To be precise, it actually converted tiny crystals of carbon 
into universally recognized tokens of love and romance. Yes, tiny crystals of carbon. That's all diamonds are. They don't need to be in any part of the world. <laughs> They're all over. <laughs> du Beer, du, excuse me, Du Beer. De Beers was the category marketer and marketed diamonds as a category and not their brand. So he was in that category. What De Beers did for diamonds, anyone can do it for anything. They just made their customers proud of their bargain. Different market segments and other factors were kept in mind when progressing with the campaign. For women, the Diamond is Forever campaign played a greater role in positioning diamonds as a symbol of foreverness and true love. So yeah, they did all these campaigns about color, clarity. Um, the equity was also built on the form of emotional connection because they sold young men on the idea that they had a diamond had to be worth two months of their salary. And there's a lot to this. I could go on for a week, but I'm not going to. I'm just trying to draw the connection between, really, the Jews and the diamond business. Let's face facts here, right? I'm not all that engaged in diamonds, but because diamonds came from carbon, 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 carbon is everywhere. That's the trick, right? This is a gypsy Jew trick extraordinaire. Okay, they really pulled out the bandwagons on this deal. It is a perfect example where marketers were capable of converting luxury into needs. They converted a luxury item into something people then perceived they had to have. <laughs> These Jews are so tricky, right? The diamond price marketing strategy. It is clear that the law and demand and law of demand and supply doesn't apply on diamonds. As every diamond dug will diminish its market value because as we all know diamonds are forever but this doesn't actually happen the prices of diamonds are not dependent on supply but just on market demand it's the effect of the same marketing strategy that drives this demand till now unlike gold and silver not all diamonds can be used as an investment instrument. The usual diamonds which customers buy as jewelry, jewelry are not of investment grade and have very less resale value. Well, this makes perfect sense that they would put diamonds out there for people to slave and save up to buy to profess their love. And they're not giving people the investment grade. <laughs> This is because the wholesale and retail value of diamonds are huge differences. And the retailers desire to buy them at wholesale prices. Hence, diamonds are just pretty expensive stones with not much value. Okay. So, I don't know. After the 70s, here we're back in the 70s again, right? In the 70s, a significant change in the distribution of diamonds took place when many producers and dealers started selling rough diamonds through alternative channels instead of the unified sales channel of De Beers. De Beers, De Beers had a central selling organization called a CSO. And what they did, they used that to get everybody to deal with them. 
And there's a lot out there about the De Beers. And certainly, please take a look because it's pretty interesting. And I think when I overlaid this file, I lost my quote. But luckily, I remember it. <laughs> I was, this made the whole show today worth it. I was, um, you know, obviously scanning around, and um, somebody made a quote. They said, because diamonds, remember, we're talking 1880 when De Beers got started, right? Even though they say with their words that they're from billions of years ago, they also say that they got discovered in 1888, right, or whatever. So they're telling us that, oh, we discovered them, but they really came from billions of years ago. Well, that, that's how they do everything, right? Big lies. <laughs> I mean, these people would talk about incest and all this stuff to, to cover up their chins, right? So <laughs> their lies are incredible. So, yeah, so, uh, so they told us that these things were around for billions of years, and then they tell us that in 1888, the De Beers just, or the Oppenheimers just happened to you know, land on these diamonds in Africa, and uh, somebody in the comment says something to the effect of, well, this is interesting because of those old stories, and they quoted some old ancient time stories, probably much like that quote I did about the Bible and those jewels. Okay, think about this for a second here, okay? In the beginning, I gave you a quote about a diamond being in the Bible, right? And then they said that diamonds were billions of years ago, but then they really kind of got discovered by the De Beers in 1888, about the time they were probably either writing or rewriting the Bible. I don't know if they rewrote the Bible. How would I know that? How would you know that? They probably cooked it up, but yeah, so... I don't know. Uh, it seems kind of funny to me that I, I, I thought it was pretty clever on that person's part because they thought, hey, wait a minute here. How <laughs> how did these famous people back in Greek times talk about these jewels and stuff if they really didn't exist? Because, yes, look into carbon and diamonds, okay? What happened basically was De Beers got busted for their monopoly in the 2000s. They've been, it's a slavery business. And um, so, yeah, they got busted. And people soon discovered that diamonds are not rare. <laughs> They're still not rare. They never were rare. Um, so, yeah, that's not my point. But the point is, is that what a big deception, right? They never were real. They created this whole idea that they were real. They set up two classes of diamonds, investment-quality diamonds. They shuffled off the cheap diamonds to us as far as an engagement rings and stuff. And they created this billion-dollar industry, is it worth as much as they say? Yeah, I'd say it's probably worth a lot more because I was in the um, diamond section of New York once, that Jewish section, when I was there on business. And um, that's an all-cash business, buddy. That's an all-cash business. And I remember that from, what, 20, 30 years ago when I was in New York on business. And I cruised through that diamond section. I didn't buy anything, but I just cruised through a bunch of Jews and little booths. Um, I felt a little anti-Semitic at the time thinking that way. But, yeah, it was a bunch of little Jews in booths, okay? Let, let's just call a spade a spade here. <laughs> and then they, and they were, I was with somebody who was buying, and they, everybody was dealing in cash, okay? Now, can I prove that they're robbing a lot of money? No, but let's try to use our brains a little bit here, folks, because <laughs> they set up a business that probably is all cash, right? So, okay. Uh, so now... There are diamonds are everywhere. People moved away from diamonds, the real diamonds, because of the slave trade. So I think De Beers is probably going to be in China selling the real diamonds to the Chinese, the lab-grown diamonds here. And oy vey, what a mess we got going on there. 
Goodbye for now. Stay safe out there. The French are glad to die for love. They delight in fighting duels. But I prefer a man who lives and gives expensive jewels. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. A kiss may be grand, but won't pay the rental on your humble flat, or help you at the automat. Men grow cold as girls grow old, and we all lose our charms in the end. Square cut or pear shape, these rocks don't lose their shape. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Tiffany's, Cartier, Black Star, Frost, Gore. Talk to me, Harry Winston. Tell me all about it. Needs a lawyer, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. There may come a time when a hard-boiled employer thinks you're awful nice, but get that ice or else no dice. He's your guy when stocks are high, but beware when they start to descend. It's then that those louses go back to their spouses. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. I've heard of affairs that are strictly platonic, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. I think affairs that you must keep with Sonic are better bets. If little pets get big baguettes, time rolls on and youth is gone, and you can't straighten up when you bend. But stiff back or stiff knees, you stand straight as teeth.